Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and the ideas that are shaping our world. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about race, language, war, mental health, the future of humanity, and the meaning of life. In the integrated review of Britain's security, defence, development and foreign policy that was published in March this year, which was intended to set out a vision of the new post-Brexit global Britain, the government announced that it was lifting its cap on nuclear warheads from 180 to 260. The announcement surprised most people and disappointed many, but it served as a rather blunt reminder that conflict remains a real threat, indeed a reality, for many people in the world today. For all that most people who will be listening to this podcast will have grown up in a period of remarkable peace, it remains true that there hasn't been a single year since 1945 when the world has been free from war. Indeed, a long-running project at the University of Uppsala in Sweden has estimated that since the end of World War II, over 50 million people have been displaced by war, and that since the end of the Cold War, over 2 million people have died in conflicts. We may be getting more peaceable, as Stephen Pinker has argued, but we are far from living in peace. Margaret Macmillan is Emeritus Professor of International History at the University of Oxford, a world-renowned expert on history and international relations, and the author of War, How Conflict Shaped Us, which was based on her BBC Wreath lectures, The Mark of Cain. Margaret, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much. Let's begin at the beginning, as it were. Your Wreath lectures were called The Mark of Cain which picks up on the famous story in Genesis 4 in which God places a mark on Cain who killed his brother Abel. It's interesting that although that mark was intended to be protective in the story, protective for Cain so that no one who found him would want to kill him, it's actually become a symbol of Cain's own guilt and humanity's guilt and our capacity for murder. Genesis places this depressingly early on in the storyline. So I wanted to begin by asking you, how far do you think human bellicosity, our inclination towards war, goes back in history? One of the reasons we chose that title was because we wanted to raise this question of, is it something inherent in human nature that we fight? And what I would do, if I may, just at the beginning, is make a distinction between one-on-one violence or random violence or sudden violence and what war is because war is highly organized and it's, I think, different. It uses violence, but it's not the same as something that suddenly bursts out. War is something that is planned and organized often for a very long time. And your question about how far back it goes in human society is one of the ones I think that historians and archaeologists and evolutionary biologists are wrestling with. We don't know for sure how far back organized violence goes. But it seems to go back quite far. It seems to go back into human organization, that there seems to be an intimate relationship between our ability to organize ourselves and our ability and indeed our willingness to fight with each other. And so when we try and find, of course, the further back you go, the more difficult it is to find evidence. But 
there have been discoveries of ancient graves, even when people were, were nomads, graves that show mass number of bodies which bear the marks of trauma. It looks like they probably were killed in some sort of conflict. And we know that once we began to settle down, become agriculturalists 12,000 years ago or possibly more, we began to defend ourselves. They found very early walls, and you don't put up a wall unless you're afraid of something. And we also began to attack others. And so, you know, as far as we can tell, but there's no clear answer, war and human society go hand in hand a long way back together. That has historically made people quite anxious, hasn't it? You think of Rousseau's idea of the noble savage in in the 18th century, that prehistory humans actually were not bellicose, but they lived in peace and harmony with nature and one another. And you mentioned Margaret Mead, the famous earlier 20th century anthropologist who wrote a book about coming of age in Samoa, where she thought she discovered that native people again lived in peace and sexual generosity and overall harmony. And subsequently, it was revealed that she was probably wrong. Both those are examples of the way in which, in a sense, we don't want that to be true, do we? We're we're a bit nervous about tracing bellicosity right back to our origins I think you're absolutely right. I think we are afraid that it might suggest that we are simply doomed always to organize ourselves into groups that want to fight other groups. And that, I think, is very depressing. And I think we need to remember that we've also had considerable periods of peace. And if we have impulses to violence as a species, we also have impulses to friendship, to altruism, to working together. You know, we're not one thing or the other, I think. And I think we have to look at different types of societies and and different types of political organizations. But I think for too long in the West, particularly perhaps, we've comforted ourselves with this idea that basically in a state of nature, people are all terribly kind and they work happily with each other and they never bash each other over the head or they never want something that belongs to someone else. And Margaret Mead, I think, a wonderful anthropologist. I remember reading her book when I was young, but, you know, I think it was something of a fantasy And some of the people she talked to in Samoa later on said, well, we told her what she seemed to want to hear. (laughs) That's what makes us really so fascinating as a species, isn't it, really? As you say, we have an impulse to war and an impulse to peace, an impulse to bellicosity and towards altruism. We're a very complicated species like that. We were talking a bit earlier before we came on air, as it were, about the biological drives towards conflict and cultural drives towards conflict. And if we take as read that there is some element of aggression in our nature, you would say that that isn't a sufficient explanation for the history of war in our species. There are cultural factors at play here, aren't they? So how do they relate to the biological ones? And why do we go to war for cultural reasons? Let's start with the biological reasons. I mean, we don't all have an impulse to violence. And there's a very interesting school of thought now, which is arguing that, in fact, over time, we've become less capable of violence and and more likely to be peaceable. And this, I think, is an interesting argument. Again, it, it hasn't been settled. And when you think of how people have to be often persuaded and trained into becoming warriors, you know, one of the reasons the military do so much training is because they're trying to get people to do things which is actually probably not natural. Do you really want to go out and kill someone else? Do you really want to go out and risk your own life? And that's what military training is all about. And so I think those who fight are often products of societies or institutions which have trained them in that way and instilled those sort of values. My own feeling, and and evolutionary biologists might disagree with me and probably do, is that we have to take culture very seriously 
as a factor in why certain societies go to war and others don't. I mean, we know that we learn values from our societies and we know that some societies have different sorts of values and people who live in those societies tend to absorb those values and they may react against them. But you do have, through history, societies that have been peaceable and you also have societies that have been warlike. And what's encouraging is sometimes they can change. I mean, an example I often use is either Swiss society or Swedish society, which produced some of the most ferocious fighters in Europe in the late Middle Ages and and early modern ages. I mean, you know, if you were in Europe somewhere and you heard that the Swiss Landknecht were coming, you'd want to get out of the way. And the same thing with the Swedes. And you look at those countries now and they uphold values of peace and social harmony and in fact do a good deal to promote the cause of peace. That's incredibly interesting. And I want to ask you in a minute about what changes some cultures away from warlike culture of bellicosity towards greater level of peace. But I think it is so worth emphasising that, isn't it? Because if it was simply biology, all cultures all the time would roughly exhibit the same level of violence and the same level of conflict. Mm. But one of the things that's very clearly drawn out in your book is that some cultures, and the Spartans you mentioned, Prussia, perhaps Rome, really prize a kind of a martial culture, don't they? Do you have any idea, before we look at why some cultures become more peaceable, do you have any idea of why some cultures are more warlike? It may be to do with, given their times, being more warlike is likely to get you more. More in the way of power, more in the way of loot, more in the way of slaves, whatever it is that you want to acquire. And particularly, I think, when you have weak central government Peoples who can defend themselves and protect themselves against their predatory neighbors, and there will be predatory neighbors. I mean, we've seen what happens in failed states even today. People who can protect themselves are going to also be better at at simply expanding their power. They've organized to do it. And so I think in certain societies, being warlike pays off. Religion is so often connected with war, certainly in the popular imagination. And I've had more conversations than I can count with people who trot out the line that religion causes war. I think you'd have to be a fool not to recognise their historically, even perhaps even today, connections between the two. But what's your view on the, the causal or connection or the correlation between religiosity on the one hand and violence on the other? Well, I think we often need a reason for why we fight. And that reason, of course, sometimes can simply be greed, and acquisitiveness or, or vengeance. But I think so often people want to feel that they're fighting for a cause or they live in a world in which a cause has become very important. And so if you live in a world that is a deeply religious world and you see that your religion or you believe that your religion is the, the truth and you want to expand your religion and you want all people to see the truth, then you may be prepared to go as far as violent action against those who won't see what you think is the truth. And we see that in the wars of religion in Europe in the 17th century. I mean, people, good Christian people who happened to adhere to different types of Christianity saw others as those who were, I think, in some ways doing the devil's work. They were evil. They were standing in the way of what was goodness. And so to use violence against such people is not wrong. It's actually to be carrying out the purpose of your religion or the supreme being in your religion. I think it's striking that monotheistic religions tend to have promoted more wars and and been validation for wars more than polytheistic religions. I don't think, although there are lots of stories in Hindu mythology about the gods fighting each other and, and intervening in human affairs, I don't think 
adherence to a particular god in Hinduism was the same sort of motivating factor that adherence to a monotheistic god was in Judaism or Christianity or Islam. I was also struck when you were talking in the book about the attitude of the medieval church towards violence and warfare, because you get this twin approach where on the one hand there's an emphasis on the peace of God and rules against plundering churches or peasants and not attacking merchants and limiting fighting to certain days and an attempt around you know a thousand AD or so to try and bring the level of violence down at just about the same time as the papacy authorizes large-scale violence against a different religious group. So you get this bizarre sense that violence is really, really bad in one circumstance, but in another circumstance, it's actually perfectly fine. Yes, and I think that the impulses are connected because what the church didn't want was Christians fighting each other. And, and by the way, among the groups who weren't meant to be attacked, of course, were the clergy themselves. That was seen as you know, extremely bad Very important, thing to yes. do. But I think part of the reason why the church and successive popes were pushing a peace of God among Christians was that they believed that Christians should be united against the unbelievers the Muslims, and that they should be prepared to go and retrieve the Holy Lands. And so war against others of a different religion was perfectly all right. And even things like the sorts of weapons you could use, when gunpowder first made its appearance, various popes tried to outlaw it. And in fact, as they did with the crossbow, saying these were um, devilish inventions which should not be used on good Christians. But the exception was made that it's quite all right to use them on Muslims. You mentioned the particularly brutal wars of religion of the 17th century, which wiped out, I think, something like a third or a half of the population of German lands. Absolutely atrocious. And in the wake of that, in the period that we now call the Enlightenment, there was a great hope, wasn't there, that actually we could move away from that because of trade. Peaceful trade between nations would be the thing that prevented them from going to war. And throughout periods of history, that's been a great hope, hasn't it? Is it borne out? Does trade act as an antidote to warfare? I think the record is mixed. I think what trade can do is bring us closer together. It makes us interdependent. If I produce certain things and I can trade them to other people for things they produce... If I can produce things in my factories and buy raw materials from other people, or they can produce things in their factories, which I can buy. I mean, it also, it does bring people closer together. It also brings movement of peoples. I mean, you, you still find streets in, in the city of London, for example, which are named after the Huguenots or after the trading firms from Germany or from the German states that, you know, you have Baltic Street, for example, mm. which reflects the, the Hanseatic League. And so the movements of peoples, I think, can be very important. But it, it can work the other way. We can get edgy about trade. We can think we're losing out to other countries. I mean, if you think of President Trump, who somehow thought because the United States was running a trade deficit in China, that China was somehow taking advantage of the United States. I mean, unfortunately, you get this sort of zero-sum game in trade, that if I sell more to you, then I'm doing quite well than you sell to me. But if you sell more to me than I'm selling to you, then I'm somehow being cheated. And so trade can... Why, even while it links peoples together, it can also divide them and make them suspicious of each other. And it hasn't, unfortunately, prevented countries that trade with each other from going to war with each other. Mm. 
I'm reminded of how, if you take, for example, the British presence in India, it begins as simply a trading enterprise, but it gets more and more evolved. And the British come to believe that trade needs to be protected, and it needs to be protected firstly by private armies and then by the, the country's army, and then an empire is built. What was the phrase about the British conquered the world in a fit of absent-mindedness or something like that? Yeah. How actually trade almost paved the way for a degree of colonialism, really. Yeah, and of course, the profits were enormous. I mean, the profits to be made from trading with the Indies, as they were called in those days, this is why you had so many East India companies in different European countries, the profits were huge. I mean, the cargoes of tea, the cargoes of silks, the cargoes of porcelain, um, cargoes of indigo, all these things had a huge market in Europe, and they made huge profits. And those who were making the profits, of course, wanted to hang on to them. And often they called on their own governments to provide protection. The governments didn't necessarily want to, but they found themselves in, in a position of wanting to protect this valuable source of revenue, um, not always wanting to have to spend more money on, on the people to defend it. But I think in a funny way, we're seeing the same sort of thing happening to the Chinese today. They are going into different countries to trade. They're building ports, they're building railways, and they're saying, we're only here to trade. We don't want to get involved politically. But if you want to protect your trade, particularly if the government you're dealing with or the situation you're dealing with has an instability, you often end up having to put in security. I mean, apparently the Chinese now have literally hundreds of thousands of security people around the world to protect their resources and their trade and their infrastructure in various countries, such as Pakistan. And so I, I see almost what's happening with China as what happened with the East India companies. They're being drawn in, and like it or not, they may find themselves having to use military force to protect what they've already invested in. I think that's absolutely right. I'm convinced it's the case, not least seeing as for some of these very substantial investments that China has made abroad in South Asia or Africa, a lot of the time, the equipment that they have invested in the ports or the railways become collateral against the countries not being able to pay the debt they're owed. Yeah. And therefore, you, you see the situation where China get to own deep water ports in South Asia yeah. or railway infrastructure projects in, in West Africa. I don't think a lot of these, well, some of them were empire builders, but I think a lot of the Europeans who went to trade in places like the Americas, in places like Asia, were there for the profits. And if they could do it as cheaply as possible, they didn't want to have to spend on protecting supply routes or protecting ports or, or putting down local local upheavals. But they found themselves doing it, partly because their very presence was, of course, adding to instability. Well, that relationship between traders and the governments who, as it were, come in behind them to protect their investment points to a really important, almost like a turning point in the history of war. Certainly, I, I picked this up from the book. You mentioned the Battle of Valmy um, in 1792 between the French and the Prussians as a moment whereby almost the entire concept of war changes from a more of a privatised affair to one in which there is true national investment there. And on the back of that, as I think you quote, war made the state and then the state made war. How there was from the end of the 18th century, this almost reciprocal relationship between warfare and the role of the state. Well, in fact, the saying you quoted, I wish I could take credit for it because it's such a good one, is actually Charles Tilley, who's an extraordinary sociologist. And I think he's really on to something. And he's talking also, I think, about the slightly earlier period, the 17th and 18th centuries, when you saw the growth of strong central states and the crushing 
of the power often of local magnates. You know, those people who sat in their castles defying the central government no longer were able to do so because central governments began to get better weapons, better forces, began to blow down the walls of the castles, began to bring these independent magnates under control. And of course, the stronger the government got, the better it was at extracting resources from its own society. The British government in the 18th century became a highly professional government. It developed a bureaucracy, it developed ways of assessing taxes, it developed ways of making sure they were spent without too much corruption, without too much sticking to people's fingers on the ways. It helps to explain, I think, a lot of the success of the British in the 18th century. They had an enormously powerful navy. And that was because they were able to get the resources out of British society to build that navy. And so the stronger a government got, the better it got at controlling its own resources and its own people. And of course, the more capable it was of expanding its borders if it chose to do so. But that goes to another gear, doesn't it, with the Napoleonic Wars. And if you look back at the number of aspects of our lives today that we take for granted, you see how many of them are traced back to some warfare. I mean, we're having this conversation on the day after Census Day. Now, the census, I think I'm right in saying, was a result of the Napoleonic Wars, wasn't it? The modern census was, but even before that, the Roman census, which is where the word comes from, the Roman census in the Roman Empire, or even in the Roman Republic, was to count up how many men of able-bodied age you had. I mean, it counted other things as well, but the census was very important to know who you had available to fight. And I think a lot of what drove the census in the modern Europe of the 19th century was precisely this, and also having to define who's a citizen and who's not. We used not to worry about such things, and the idea that you had to have something called a passport, which in fact didn't really come in on a large scale till after the First World War, was something that most people would have found very odd indeed. I mean, a passport was only for people traveling on the ruler's business for the most part. It was a sort of, please look after this person sort of thing. But knowing who's a citizen, who you can therefore ask to fight or put into your armed forces, became very important. And so the whole notion of citizenship in the 19th century and defining it gets very much tied up with the need to get people to fight wars. Obviously, developments in technology are very tied to to conflicts, developments in, in medicine, blood transfusions you talk about, and triage and surgery. And more recently, and I guess more happily as well, the very idea of setting the welfare state in Britain yeah. is tied to the collective effort there was in the 1940s as a result of war? Well, the relationship between war and technology, it always seems to me, is very like the relationship between the war and the growth of the state. They go with each other. It's very hard to say which comes first because they're so intertwined. And societies making war will often draw on the existing technology and convert it to war. And so, for example, the people who were making the cannon in Europe, when gunpowder first arrived and they began to make cannon to fire projectiles, were able to draw on the technology that existed to make church bells because you have to be able to make pretty resilient church bells. You don't want them to crack to pieces as soon as you, you begin ringing them. And so you get civilian technology being adapted for war. But what you also get, of course, is war speeding up technological development, particularly, I think, a big war. I mean, if you were fighting a war for your very existence... Money suddenly isn't an object in a way in which it might be in more peaceful times. And I think actually we've seen this with the pandemic. You know, the sorts of money that governments have been spending to prop up the economy and to get vaccines rolled out and to, you know, in the case of Britain, to support the production and development of vaccine. This would have been unthinkable a year ago. And so wars will often push governments into spending money on things which they might not have spent on before. But often those things, not always because they spend on destructive weapons which cause hideous damage, but often there will be things like improvements in medicine, 
improvements in supplies, improvements in the ways you move things around, um, and also a sense that you have to give rewards to people who have supported your war effort. And you mentioned the welfare state, and I think that was very conscious. It's there in the Beveridge Report. I mean, he says, we have to do something for the British people who have made, I can't remember his exact words, but basically made the war effort possible. We can't go back to where we were. Particularly after Lloyd George promised from 25 years earlier about heroes and, and homes and the sense yeah. of disappointment there was there. Yeah. There was a palpable sense, wasn't there, that if we're going to win the war against Hitler, we jolly well make sure we need to win the peace too. Exactly. And we need to um, not have the sorts of political dissension that we had at the end of the First World War. And, you know, and, and everybody knows the story of women getting the votes, I think. It might have happened. It was probably going to happen anyway, but I think it happened sooner because of the contribution that women made in countries such as Britain to the war effort in the 1914-18 war. Let's go back to our Swiss and our Swedes, because I want to look towards the ways in which we as a species have attempted to limit war or to control it or have moved away from warlike societies. Can you tell me a bit about the attempts that have been throughout history to legislate against war, to limit war? Those attempts, as far as we know, go back a very long way. I mean, they, they seem to have been there almost from the beginning of warfare itself. A sense that you should only fight until you've achieved what you wanted, that your means should be proportionate. In other words, if you want to take someone else's piece of land, you don't actually then need to kill everyone in that society. (laughs) Um, You know, certain sort of rough rules of thumbs like that, but also rules about when you should fight and when you shouldn't. We know that the ancient Greeks didn't fight when the Olympics were on, and there were certain days that they didn't fight. And you mentioned earlier on the medieval church tried to say no fighting on certain holy days, You know, no fighting on Easter, no fighting on Christmas Day, no fighting on a number of other important festivals. And we've also tried to limit the sorts of weapons to try and prevent the use of certain weapons. After the First World War, people were so horrified by the various poisonous gases that both sides used that they outlawed them. And in fact, that outlawing has remained, even though it's been breached, of course. And also an attempt to limit who can be targeted in war, attempt to say that civilians shouldn't be targets of war. And so we have tried... And we've tried to do disarmament. We've tried to say we're not going to develop certain weapons. We're not going to have as many weapons as we need. There have been lots of arms conventions. I mean, it's been a huge burst of them in the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries. And we're still trying. And then there are, I think, even more encompassing goals, the grander goals of trying to get rid of war altogether, to, to build a League of Nations or to build a concert of Europe, as they called it in the 19th century, or to have a United Nations that will make it impossible for nations to go to war. And so we try both to limit it, but I think we always have the hope that we can outlaw it. Mm. I may be exaggerating a bit here, but it strikes me that one of the more important, if less well-known developments in these attempts was St. Augustine's argument that war could only be waged by legitimate authority because that presumably massively constricts the number of bodies that can call for warfare, which is going to have a a significant effect, particularly when there are many, many, many different cultures and bodies that are bellicose. Am I giving too much credit to Augustine? No, I don't think you are at all. I mean, I think he wrote about so many things and his thoughts about war are not in any one place. They're, They're here and they're there. But I think this idea that war is somehow an organized activity and has to have some sort of validity, which again sounds odd to us, but I think we all sort of instinctively know it. If two states go to war, we say, well, this is awful. 
but they have some sort of right to take their people into war. But if I suddenly decide to organize my neighbors to wage war on, on another street down the road, I think generally people would say that's illegitimate, that I have no right to start a small local war like this. And I think we do make a sort of distinction. It may not mean much, but I think the fact that we keep on making it indicates that we see some moral difference between war that is waged by at least legitimate authorities, and of course we can debate till the cows come home what that might mean, and wars that are simply done sporadically, spontaneously for people to fill in certain goals. I mean, I think that's why we see the sorts of wars that go on and on in the Great Lakes region of Africa, for example, in the unfortunate Congo or in Afghanistan as so appalling because they seem to fill no legitimate purpose at all beyond enriching or promoting the, the strength of their particular protagonists. And that presents a peculiar conundrum for us today, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, the belief that only legitimate authorities that are able to declare war would be one of the factors that has limited the number of wars in what we call the post-war period. But we're moving into a period of time whereby you could argue that different state actors are continually waging a kind of war upon one another, but in a very surreptitious way. We've talked about cyber warfare almost continually today. This is a kind of very, very different, of course, from any other form of war in history, but there's still hostile attacks that haven't been formally and officially authorised, publicly authorised by hostile governments. It's that grey zone that you're in a state of war but not actually at war and that you are doing your best to cause trouble for what you see as your enemy, but you don't want to do it openly because I think the penalties might be too great. And I think we've seen it before. We've seen it before with the use of assassinations, with governments using assassinations against their political enemies or their their state enemies. But of course, the means for waging such wars, I think, are even greater today than they were in the past. And, And cyber war and the whole what's going on, and we even talk now about cyberspace as if it's a new type of battlefield. And the potential for damage is vast. I mean, we're beginning to realize, most of us, just how much the functioning of our societies, how our clean water, our light, things working, depends on the internet. And if you can disrupt that, as is constantly happening, you can actually cause real misery to people. And I think that is a worry, because governments are doing this under the table. They have, you know, they can deny, they can say, oh, these people are just hackers, we had nothing to do with them. But it looks very much as if governments are sponsoring and using such methods of war against each other. So do you think we need a similar kind of process that we developed a thousand or so years ago very, very slowly with regard to the gradual reigning in of formal warfare? Do we need the same process in the beginning of the third millennium with regard to reigning in and legislating against cyber warfare? Well, the problem is to find out who's behind it. You get these farms of hackers somewhere, perhaps in Bulgaria, perhaps in the Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, I think it's now called Macedonia today, who may be working for a government, but it's again, as I say, it's easily deniable. But I think, no, I think it's got to be brought under control. And the other thing that we have only begun to think about controlling is artificial intelligence in war. Now, increasingly artificial intelligence, autonomous weapon systems, which guide themselves and which can learn 
from whatever they encounter, which are teaching themselves as, as they're um, developing. These are absolutely terrifying. And, and we haven't as yet, as far as I can see, built in any, any sort of ethical standards saying to these autonomous weapon systems, no, you mustn't hit schools or buildings with, with red crosses on the roofs because that, that's wrong. And it doesn't look like there's much willingness on the part of government to do it. But I find that you know a huge new field, which really worries me. Mm. Yes, understandably. I do want to end on a note that's positive and uplifting by going back to Swiss and Sweden, going back to this wider issue of how it is that cultures become less bellicose, less inclined to warfare. And we could add to this mix the fact that people say the idea of a war in Europe today, 70 years after the Second World War, is really unthinkable. So there are clearly moments of decisive cultural shift in history where we turn away from war. Is it just we're turning away from exhaustion or is there something more profound going on there? I think probably a combination of both, but I think it's the more profound that is more interesting. And that is we have moments where we think this just isn't good enough. We can't go on like this. This is appalling. What does it say about us? I'm not quite sure why, but it seems to me there's been a huge cultural shift in Europe. And it's very clearly in reaction to the Second World War, but perhaps also spurred on by the way in which Europe and Europeans came together to rebuild after the Second World War. I mean, if you'd looked in 1945, you would have thought this continent's had it. No one's going to sort of make any effort. And people did, you know, and people did rebuild. There's a very interesting book. It's called Where Have All the Soldiers Gone? I think the author is Neil Sheehan, who asks this question. And and he argues that, you know, as you say, it's unthinkable that the Europe of today would promote a war as the Europe or many people in Europe of 1939 did. And I think that is important. I think we, we change our value systems. We change what we think is important. And it's happened before. It's happened in particular cultures. You mentioned the Swiss and the Swedes, and we think also of Prussia, which was a highly militarized society, particularly among its, its landowning classes. And it's quite different. It became quite different. So I think we have to hang on to that. And we need a bit of optimism when we think about war. So would you side with Stephen Pinker then, who has famously written substantially on the way in which we are becoming more peaceful as a species? Well, I agree with him on that. And I think we probably are becoming more peaceful in our societies. The United States, where of course he lives, is a bit of an outlier. It has one of the highest, I think the highest homicide rates in the world, certainly in the developed world. But on the whole, I think we are becoming less tolerant of violence. We don't have public executions anymore. We don't have violent sports. We don't tolerate things like bear baiting, or if it happens, we're we're appalled by it. And so I think as societies, we are becoming more peaceful and we've developed, I think, better law and order in many societies. But does that mean we're not going to fight with each other? You know, I think there's still a capacity for states to mobilize in war. If people feel frightened, they may well come to mobilize for war. Mm. And I would really always make a distinction between domestic societies, although they clearly affect war, but individuals. I may be more peaceable, but if I were trained, Mm. as people have been trained in the past, I could become part of a war fighting unit. Mm. Your book is subtitled How Conflict Shaped Us. So I guess my final question has to be, how has it shaped us? What does war say about us? Well, it says a mixture of things. I mean, the thing that's fascinating about war is that it brings out the worst and the best. You know, it brings out the cruelest sides of our nature, and we commit, as humans, terrible things, terrible acts in war. But it also brings out a type of altruism, 
which those who fought in wars say that you often don't find, for the most part, in, in ordinary life. It's not demanded. But so many of the war memoirs and the people I've talked to who fought in wars say that there is something where you are prepared to do something for others and they're prepared to do things for you, which we wish we had more of in civilian society. You know, there is that shared responsibility. We can say that it's for the wrong ends in war, but the fact of, of the altruism and the shared responsibility, I think, is something very important. And so what can we learn from war? I think we can learn the best and the worst about ourselves, but perhaps we can also learn how to come together for a common cause, not to fight, but to make our own societies better. The book is called War, How Conflict Shaped Us. Margaret McMillan, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Next week, I'll be talking to Lord Martin Rees about the future of humanity. We've got no guarantee that the entities who are our progeny a few hundred years from now will have anything more than an algorithmic understanding of our emotions and how we behaved because there could be changes, and indeed future evolution is not going to be Darwinian, it's going to be what I call secular intelligent design. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Stanley, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.